Good morning. Back to John chapter 3. This morning we're going to be in verses 9 through 15. You can find those on page 888 in the Pew Bible. We have finally made it onto the third page of John. And we are back to Nicodemus. And with Nicodemus, we are back to birth. Jesus, rabbi, the master teacher, has chosen an elementary earthly metaphor to convey to us a profound eternal reality. He has said twice to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And birth, we know, is about life. Birth begets life. And so as we saw in saying that you must be born again, Jesus is also then saying that you must be dead. For living people don't need life. Living people don't need to be born. Wait a second. Nicodemus is obviously very much physically living. He's alive, standing before Jesus, breathing, speaking. Jesus must then be speaking about something other than physical life. And so when Jesus moves from born again or born from above in verse 3 to born of water and spirit in verse 5 to born of the spirit in verse 8, Jesus reveals to us what he means. You must be born spiritually. You may be physically alive, but without the spirit, without Christ, you are spiritually dead. We are not materialists. We know that life is more than matter. We know that much of what really matters in life is more than matter. There is mind and beauty and poetry and love. All these things that are not material. We are not just material. We are composite beings, a union of body and soul, matter and mind, physical and spiritual. And to Nicodemus, this man that seems to have it all, A good, moral man, a religious man, a leader, well-educated, a teacher. If being saved is about being a good person, Nicodemus checks all the boxes. Remember we saw last week that Nicodemus is better than you. Nicodemus is better than me. But to this really good man, even to him, Jesus says, you, even you, must be born again. You may be physically alive. But all of your external goodness, all your morality, all your religiosity, all your rituals, all your social justice, all your church attending, all your tithing, all your whatever, whatever that thing is for you that you look to and point to and say, look, look, look at this thing. I'm a good person. Look at all that I'm doing. This proves that I'm all right, that I have life. Jesus says to Nicodemus and to you, you may be physically alive. You may be religiously active, you may be relatively moral, you may be pursuing justice, but you are spiritually dead. You must be born again. And the first verse of our passage, verse 9, is Nicodemus's understandable response to all this. What? <laughs> Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Or possibly better translated, how is this thing able to happen. How can this be true? How can this new birth Jesus that you're talking about happen? And so we close last week with verse 8 and our final point. It is the spirit who gives life, right? If you are spiritually dead, you need spiritual life. And scripture says that all of us are born into the world physically alive, but spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1. It is then God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives that needed life. You cannot cause yourself to be born again. You cannot work for or earn the spiritual life that you need to live and be saved. God must provide it for you. The Spirit must give it. That's the what that you need. The Spirit who gives spiritual life. How would you answer this question, though? This most basic of questions. How would you answer the question, what what is a Christian? 
I bet we would get a lot of answers to that question, a lot of different answers if I went around the room right now. I bet if I looked around right now and picked one of you and just kind of put you on the spot and said, stand up. Some of you are already looking down. All right, well, how, how, would you, how would you answer the question? I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not, I'm not Henry, so you guys are safe. I won't, put you, I won't put you guys on the spot. Some of you might struggle to answer that question, but how would you answer it? What is a Christian? Well, one of the best and simplest answers is also given to us by John, which goes right along with his record of what Jesus is teaching here. Twice in 1 John, chapter 3, verse 24, we read, By this we know that God abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. And in 4.13 we read, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his Spirit. Paul says bluntly in Romans 8.9, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Right, a Christian is simply someone who has the Spirit, and thus someone who has the life that the Spirit brings. That's the what. You need the Spirit. You need the new birth that comes only by the Spirit. It's found only in Him. But Nicodemus' next question logically follows. How? How does this happen? Okay, Jesus, you're clear. You must be born again. It's the Spirit that does that. Well, how does that happen? Well, that's what Jesus turns to tell us next. We're going to start briefly again with Nicodemus, who, remember, he he represents us. Let's see ourselves in Nicodemus. Let's first establish again the problem. Last week, point three was we cannot cause ourselves to be born again. Well, today we'll look at our depravity and need in these terms. Point number one, quite simply, man does not and cannot understand. I'm just going to use the language that Jesus uses. Uh, Last week, point number four was that it was the spirit who gives life. Well, how can he do that? To those of us who are sinful and dead in our sin. Well, ultimately Jesus is the how, but we're going to break that down. Point number two, we're going to see that Jesus brings revelation. We cannot understand. Well, Jesus gives the needed understanding. Point number three then, most importantly, we're going to see that Jesus brings redemption. We are dead, slaves to sin. Jesus dies and redeems. And then point number four, getting us ready for next week in John 3.16. How do we respond to and receive this? Quite simply, belief brings life. So that's, that's our goal. We're going to start with the problem. Henry said it in Sunday school, right? The good news, you need the bad news of the law first. We need our problem first. And then the good news makes sense and is beautiful and attractive. So we're going to start there and then build our argument. Are you a Christian? Right? We're seeking to move beyond superficial answers to that question. Well, of course. I was raised in a Christian home. I go to church. I give. I believe some stuff about Jesus. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I was baptized. No. Let's, let's stop with that. Do you have the Spirit? That's the question. How does that happen? What does that look like? Well, let's continue on in John chapter 3. I'm going to read the whole thing. I just think it's too important to kind of break it down. Um, I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 15 um, because I just want to get what Jesus says at the beginning in our minds as we then continue on. But we'll focus on verses 9 through 15. But let me read John chapter 3 starting in verse 1. Pay attention because this is what God wants to say to you today. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If you would bow with me and let's first go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this word uh, that you have given to us, this word recorded for us uh, 2,000 years ago, almost, uh, this word that you have been working through for those 2,000 years uh, to bring um, dead hearts to life. And as Pastor Mike prayed, we pray that you would do that same thing today. Father, show us Jesus Christ. Um, show him uh, as uh, the great revealer and as the great redeemer. We pray that you would use his words here to open our eyes to his beauty and to his glory, to his goodness and his kindness. Father, I pray that you would help me. Apart from you, I can do nothing in this time. Uh, we cannot preach your word. We cannot hear your word apart from your spirit. Um, so we ask for that spirit now uh, to work through this word. Father, please help us. Glorify your name. Edify your people. And we ask and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so last week Jesus says, you must be born again. Verse 9, Nicodemus says, how? Right? Nicodemus does not understand. And can you blame him? If you think about it, let's step back for a second. This is one of the most dramatic statements ever spoken. One of the most important statements ever spoken. You must be born again. This is one of the most radical statements ever spoken. And I'm using that word correctly. I'm using the word radical and the original meaning of the word, not how we use that word today. We use it to mean extreme or something extremely different or unexpected. Originally, the word radical meant something else entirely. It's from the Latin word for root, radix, and it meant going back to the original, going back to that which is essential. Our current use of the word developed in American politics where a radical was someone who wanted to change the very root or essence of society and government. So we could mean both uses of the word when we say that this new birth is radical. Yes, it's in the sense of extreme. It's different from the norm. It's not that which we normally expect or see. But what I want you to see is the radical nature of this phrase in the sense that this is simply what it means to be a Christian. This is the essence, right? This is the root of the Christian life. This seems extreme to us, but actually this is the norm. You cannot be a Christian if this basic thing is not true for you. You must be born again. You must be transformed at your very root. Your very essence must be changed. You need this radical change. You need to be made new. You need the spirit and spiritual birth and life. As Calvin says in his commentary on this section, he says, By the phrase born again is expressed not the correction of one part, but the renovation of the whole nature. 
Hence it follows that there is nothing in us that is not sinful. For if reformation is necessary in the whole and in each part, corruption must have been spread throughout. Christ, therefore, declares that our understanding and reason is corrupted and that all the affections of our heart are wicked and reprobate. We need to bring the word reprobate back. I love that word. It's a good word. If Calvin is correct, then we've got a radical problem, a root problem, demanding a radical solution. We are corrupted down to our our core, our root. Therefore, any solution to our problem must get down to that core. The corruption must be cleansed. The dead must be made alive. We have a heart problem. And this is what we looked at two sermons ago, back in 225, when some were believing in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe them. He did not believe in their belief because we're told he himself knew what was in man. And what did he know about what was in man? We saw a couple of these. How about Genesis 6-5? How's our heart? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We looked at Jeremiah 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Right? The world is telling you to follow your heart. I don't know about you, but I have tried that on many occasions. And my heart has led me to do some sinfully stupid and even evil things. Don't follow the thing that scripture says is your very problem. Right? Common sense. Don't follow the thing that scripture says is deceitful more than all other things. Right? Come on, don't, don't do that. Theologians refer to this kind of whole concept as total depravity. Depravity just means wicked, corrupt, evil. It comes from a Latin word that means crooked or perverse. And by total depravity, we do not mean that we are as bad as we could possibly be. We mean that our corruption affects the whole of our person, the entirety of our being, our thinking, our feeling, and our willing. R.C. Sproul says that he prefers the term radical corruption instead of total depravity because it conveys the truth that we are corrupted down to our very core. Sin is pervasive. It has corrupted our heart. The heart is the seat of our understanding. Notice in Genesis 6-5, we think with our hearts. Sin has therefore corrupted those hearts and thus has corrupted even our understanding. And this is our first point. As a result of our depravity, as a result of our being born into a state of sin and then continuing on with specific acts of sin, man does not and cannot understand. And I just left it there to keep the point short and left the object of our lack of understanding undefined, but we're obviously speaking in reference to what Jesus has been speaking of. We are totally unable to understand spiritual matters, the things that are pertaining to spiritual life. So just like last week, you must be born again, but you are dead. You therefore cannot cause yourself to be born again. This week, you must understand Jesus Christ. You must understand the life that is found only in his person and work, but you are totally depraved. You cannot understand Jesus Christ. We do not understand the things of God. And nor does Nicodemus. That's what he reveals in verse 9. How can these things And look at verse 10. Jesus answers him with a rebuke in verse 10. Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? 
Remember back, Nicodemus was introduced to us in verse 1. He's a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. He would have likely uh, had the whole Torah, the whole first five books of our Bible memorized, and probably much more. He was a teacher, somehow maybe the teacher of Israel, Jesus says. Some sort of position of, of prominence, of great influence, and responsibility to teach others. And here comes Jesus, the true teacher, saying to this supposed teacher, you do not understand these things. And he should have. Jesus' point is that this new birth is not anything new. And it's also there in those Hebrew scriptures that Nicodemus was supposed to know so well. We saw it last week in Ezekiel 36. God's promise to cleanse his people, to give his people a new heart, and to put within them a new spirit. To put his own spirit within them. Well, that's the new birth in the Old Testament. Ezekiel 11:19 God says I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh well, that's the new birth Deuteronomy 36, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live see Jesus com God commands these things that must be done and then he provides the things that must be done for his people. That's the new birth in, all the way back in Deuteronomy. Right? The needed and promised new birth was all over the Old Testament, and Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, did not and cannot understand. And we are, all of us, left to ourselves just like Nicodemus. Man does not and cannot understand the things of God. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. Next thing, no one understands. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. Right? So natural man, flesh, I mean, that's all of us, all of us in our sin, cannot even understand the very things in which life is found. So we are dead, and we need life. We cannot understand that life and how it comes. So we have an understanding problem. What is the only solution to an understanding problem? Well, the first step is point number two. The first step to a problem of understanding is revelation. Jesus brings revelation. Go back to the text. Look at verse 11. We're, by the way, we're done with Nicodemus now. We are shifting from dialogue to monologue, from dialogue uh, to discourse. It's now time for the true teacher to speak and to teach. Nicodemus doesn't speak anymore. And Jesus alerts us to this in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, in the Greek. This is true truth. This is sure. This is certain. This is assured. Listen. What's so important? What does he say that we must hear? We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus back in verse 2 saying, we know. Jesus is now saying, no, no, no. You do not know. We know. I know. Listen to me, you teacher of Israel. And some people get really caught up on Jesus' use of we there, right? Who is the we that Jesus is talking about? Is he, talking, is he speaking for the disciples and apostolic authority? Is he talking about he and John, the Baptist, or the author? Is this kind of the divine we of Father, Son, and Spirit? And I don't think that's really the point. I think he's just picking up on and poking fun at the we that Nicodemus has foolishly used. Nicodemus says, we know. Jesus says, you don't. We know. I know. You do not understand, Nicodemus. 
I understand. I am speaking of things that I know. I am speaking of the things that I have seen. I am bearing witness, giving testimony, evidence, proof, revelation. But Nicodemus does not and cannot receive it. And look at the argument that Jesus makes in verse 12. He goes on, he says, If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, well, how then can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Well, what does Jesus mean there by earthly things? Well, he must mean what, he, what he's just told Nicodemus. His teaching on the new birth, on everyone's spiritual state of death that places us in need of spiritual birth and life. And so by earthly, we know that's going to be a heavenly reality. That's a spiritual reality. That's what God is going to do in the hearts of his people. So why does he call it earthly? Well, again, I think Jesus just means elementary things, beginning, basic things. If you cannot even understand these earthly things, or maybe things that can be fairly easily communicated through earthly metaphors like birth, if you cannot understand these first foundational basic things, well, how can you understand the greater things that I have to reveal to you? It's got to start with this. Or, most simply, if you are spiritually dead and are thus incapable of spiritual understanding, how can you believe any spiritual things? We've already established this. You can't. We just read that. So Jesus is saying, you think you know, Nicodemus. You have no idea. And some of you think that you know. Some of you think that you get it. Some of you think you have spiritual life because of some of these external things that you have done, efforts you have made, prayers you have prayed, goodness you have asserted. Jesus says, you have no idea. Apart from me, anything and everything else is utterly worthless. You must be born again. You do not and you cannot understand. You can do nothing apart from me. Why is that? Why can't, he, why can't we even understand? Well, he keeps going. He's making his argument. Look at verse 13. Remember our point, Revelation, verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. What does that mean? Well, it means that no one else knows the things that Jesus knows. And thus, no one else can reveal the things that Jesus has come to reveal. They don't even know them, so how could anyone else reveal them? Jesus is the only one that knows them, thus he can be the only one to reveal them. Why can't anyone else know these things? Well, he says, because no one else has ascended to heaven. No one has gone up into heaven and witnessed and observed heavenly spiritual things and then come back down to tell us about them. I've been reading a lot about writing lately, and one of the tips repeated over and over and over again, kind of for beginning writers, is write about what you know. Right? That's how you always start. You write about what you know. Right? I'm never going to write a book about quantum mechanics because I don't know anything about quantum mechanics. Right? So I'm not going to write about this thing that I don't know. Jesus is saying, none of you know anything about heavenly things. <laughs> Apart from me, none of you can know anything about heavenly things because you have not been there. Side note, don't waste your time or your money on any of those foolish heaven tourism books that have become tragically and embarrassingly really big in Christian circles. Right? Heaven is for real. I even made a movie out of it. Uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven, uh, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. Uh, go home and Google Alex Malarkey. Alex Malarkey is the boy who came back from heaven. Go Google him, uh, according to his dad. Uh, Alex, about two years ago, came out and confessed and retracted his claim, saying, I did not die. I did not go to heaven. People are profiting from lies. They should read the Bible. It is enough. Amen. Right? That's the case for every one of those books. Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven. No one then can know heavenly things, except for Jesus. 
He says, I know. I then can write about the things that I know. I then can reveal the things that I know. Because I didn't have to ascend to heaven. I created heaven, right? Heaven is my home. Heaven is heaven because that's where I am. It is where I have descended to you from. I am then the only one who can bear witness about this most important of realities. So if man does not know or understand spiritual or heavenly realities, point one, well then man needs a word from God about those things. What's the very first verse of this whole book? In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. What do words do? Words reveal. Words, uh, we reveal ourselves to each other through our words. Our words reveal our hearts. If that's true, by the way, you should be very careful with your words and very attentive to and aware of what your words are revealing about your heart. Words are revelation. And Jesus says he is the word of God. He is the revelation of God. We read in chapter 1, verse 9, that Jesus is the true light, right? Light shines, light reveals. Jesus is the light, the revelation of God. In 118, we read, why is Jesus come? Because no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus reveals God. What is God like? Look at Jesus. He is the word who we will see in chapter 6, verse 68, who has and then speaks the words of eternal life. Again, church, these words, this book that records who the word of life is, says, and what he does. These words which uh, he commissioned his followers to then write and record. These words that are, as Hebrews 4.12 tells us, living and active. These are no mere words. And church... That makes these words everything. I don't know how to effectively communicate this to you. I don't know how to effectively compel you to believe me here and act on it. Jesus says in Matthew 4.4 that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Listen, your life is dependent on food. You don't eat food and you die. That just makes sense. And think think about this. Let's... Let's unpack the metaphor that Jesus is using. I'm getting off notes here. This is always trouble. Think about this. You live by bread. That just means food for them. And think about how good and gracious God is and what he applies, supplies for us to survive on. Melissa went all out last night and she tried something new and she made patacones. Susan, thank you for turning us on to the air fryer. And Melissa made these patacones. We're obsessed with this air fryer. And she made this homemade hot green sauce. And then she made some chicken. And we had already, I had fed the girls and we had let them go play. And we said, and it was like almost this transcendent moment, right? With the patacones, with the chicken, and then the onion, and then the green sauce on it. I was just, it was bliss. The food was so yummy and good. God says, hey, you have to have this food to survive. Oh, by the way, look at all this amazing I love to eat. I just love good food. And God is so gracious that he gives us this abundance of amazing food, Korean food and Peruvian food, and we're kind of obsessed right now with Cuban food and just all these amazing varieties of things. God said, you have to have this to live, but by the way, it's going to be awesome, and this stuff is delicious and wonderful. That's the metaphor of the food. This is a really good and kind thing that God has done to us. Here's this wonderful stuff, and you will live by it. 
Right, so your life is dependent on this food. You don't eat it, you die. And yet many of you think that you can spiritually live without the word that Jesus tells us is food. That is spiritual life. Jesus says we live by God's word. Some of you must then maybe be dead. Or you're at least dangerously starving yourselves. Right? Words are revelation. And you are spending hours and hours and hours each day taking in the words of the world through entertainment and trivial, vain, and worthless social media. And then spending no time taking in the words of God. The words which are life. And let's go back to the food metaphor. We're kind of like, oh, you know, it's just this food thing. We have to have this to survive. No, remember all the abundance and the amazing things that God has given us to eat and to enjoy? His word is just like that. There's poetry and there's prose and there's narrative and these beautiful revelations of Christ and his love and what God has done. He has given us this feast, this smorgasbord of good things. And he said, all those amazing things, hey, you live by those. It's not punishment. It's not drudgery. It's he's given us amazing food and said, enjoy this and live. It's amazing. He's good. He's kind. We've got to start reading his word through that lens as the blessing and the feast that it is. And so remember our big controlling metaphor in this whole chapter is birth. Birth is about life. Birth begets life. This new birth, birth from above, begets spiritual life. And Jesus is now telling us that his words, this word, is the very means of this spiritual life. And so Nicodemus doesn't get it. He does not understand how can these things be. And Jesus starts off with revelation. You need a word from God. Jesus is that word from God. He is the solution to our lack of understanding problem. He reveals to us what we need to know, and we find him here. We find him in this living and active word. And so the how of the new birth starts with that word. It is in the hearing of this word, the words of eternal life. And it is in John 6 that Jesus shows us kind of how all this comes together right today we have jesus is revelation that's in 668 peter says hey you have the words of eternal life well last week point number four was it is the spirit who gives life that came from john 6 63 where jesus says it is the spirit who gives life the flesh is no help at all the words that i have spoken to you are spirit and life so we're seeking to answer the question how how does this new birth happen? What's the Spirit who does it? And the Spirit does it in some way through the Word. The Spirit takes and works through the Word to bring the new life. And so first, Jesus must bring that revelation. That's step one in the solution to our problem of deadness and depravity. We need revelation. We need a word from God. That's what Jesus comes to bring. But we're not done yet. We're not there Yet, we need the revelation, we need the word from God, we need the spirit to work through that word, but we've still got a problem. In telling us that we need birth, Jesus has told us that we are dead, spiritually dead. Again, we know the answer. Sin is the reason why we are dead. Ephesians 2, 1, dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Jesus is going to tell us in John 8, 34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That means that we need redemption. That means that for there to be life, something first has to be done about the sin, which is death. And for the first time in John, Jesus tells us 
what that is. And Jesus tells us how he is going to do it. Point number three, Jesus brings redemption. I don't think I had told Peter my sermon points. I can't remember. But he read for us Psalm 130 at the beginning. It was perfect. With him is plentiful redemption. This is what our God is about. Redemption. Plentiful redemption. And now we're seeing how he does it. Verse 14. Jesus is still playing the role of redeemer. redeemer, Revealer. Sorry. Now we're shifting to focus on the heart of that revelation. Now he is revealing why he has come. And ultimately... How a sinner can be born again and made new. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Stop there for now. This this is a masterful move in many ways. Uh, First, step back and look at our context. Look at the whole chapter. Notice the Jewishness of kind of this whole section. This is me laying some groundwork for next week. This is going to be important for our understanding of the glorious John 3.16. Look back at chapter 2, verse 13 for a minute. Not just chapter 3. 2, verse 13. Here's our context of all of this. We read in 2.13, Passover, Jews, Jerusalem. In verse 14, we read about the temple. In verse 15, we see temple again. In verse 18, we see Jews, 19, temple, 20, Jews, and temple, 21, temple, 21, uh, Typo, something there. Jerusalem, Passover, feast. Chapter 3, verse 1, Pharisees, Jews. Chapter, or verse 10 of our chapter, Israel. You see the context? You see how Jewish, uh, Israel, Passover, temple, all of this is going to play an important role for how we understand John 3.16. Context is king. But that context is also determining what Jesus is doing here. Jesus knows What he's about. He is the teacher and he knows his audience. He is teaching this one who is supposed to be the teacher of Israel, this Pharisee, this ruler of the Jews. And so he goes to his scriptures. He goes back to the Hebrew scriptures. He goes to a story that Nicodemus would have known very, very well. We read it earlier. Numbers 21 verses 4 through 9. I'm not going to read it again, but if you want to look at it, it's on page 129. Uh, Let's talk for a second about this A very strange story. It feels foreign and weird and strange to us. But Numbers 21, this story is arguably the central story of the book of Numbers, right? You you can't understand Numbers without this story. This is like the the pivot point. We've got just kind of the disobedience of Israel, then we've got kind of this point, and then we start to see the transition to the next generation, to the success that God grants to Deuteronomy, and then to the taking of the promised land, all pivoting around this story. Israel, like us, has been miserable. God has given grace. Israel has groaned. God has delivered. Israel has complained again and again. And we're tempted to look at Israel here and wonder, man, how could they be so foolish? But, man, how many of us spent much of 2020 just complaining? And we have to remember that if God is absolutely sovereign, declaring the end from the beginning, then our complaints are always and ultimately about him. Be very careful of a bitter spirit and a complaining heart because it is always whatever you think the secondary thing is, whoever it is that you're upset at, whatever circumstance, ultimately it is always directed toward God. The God who has promised to bring you good in all things, who has specifically promised to bring you good even out of bad. So we are then in our complaining about the things that God has promised to work for our good. We're complaining about things that he says, hey, these are good. 
Right? So God says, hey, here are these good things, and we complain about them. It's, it's utterly foolish. And I'm speaking to myself. I am a complainer at heart. I am aware of it, and I hate it. I'm seeking God's help. I'm seeking help to repent, to strive, to bear fruit, in keeping with repentance. But here again, in Numbers 21, Israel complains. And this is the last one, actually. Uh, they are again impatient, and in verse 5, they speak against God. Right? I want you to define complaining as that. Right? Why, get that into your brain. Complaining is always speaking against God. So verse 6, we struggle with, because we do not understand the gravity of sin and the wickedness of complaint. We just don't really understand God's response. Verse 6, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And, okay, no, these are not some sort of like fire-breathing dragon. Um, no, they are fiery in respect to their venom and in respect to the effects of that venom. Fiery fever and pain and then death. The wages of sin is death. God gives a very graphic illustration of that fact here. God is perfectly just and perfectly right to punish sin. Uh, God cannot act unjustly. It is against his nature and his character. So this is justice. Rejection of the God of life earns death. Sin against the eternally good God demands a correspondingly great punishment. And that's what this punishment is. Verse 7, the people repent in some sense. They go to Moses, which is wise. Moses is their mediator. He's the one that goes between the people and God. And he prays to God. And in verse 8, here's the connection to John 3. Here's what God tells Moses to do. Make a fiery serpent of bronze, we learn in verse 9. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. And so do you, do you see the parallels between Numbers 21 and Jesus? There's, there is a sin, and the punishment for that sin is death. But look at how gracious God is. We thought, we were like, oh, this is so weird, this is so mean, what's he doing? No, look at how gracious God is. The very God who has been sinned against, whose infinitely glorious goodness has been rejected, how does he respond, what does he do? He graciously provides a solution to their problem. Right? They sin and deserve death for their sin, and he graciously provides a way for that sin to be forgiven. It's kindness. It's goodness. It's mercy. And whatever that way is, that strange way to us, involves some sort of lifting up. And don't miss that the thing that is lifted up is the very thing that has caused their death. Snakes are killing you. Look at this snake. It's kind of strange, Right? Go back to our text. Back to verse 14 of John chapter 3. Jesus says, all of that, that strange story, says it's about me. It goes right along with what we saw back in 145, that Jesus is the one who Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Well, Moses wrote Numbers 21. Right? Moses wrote of Jesus. Numbers 21 is ultimately about Jesus. You must read your Old Testament as if it was ultimately about Jesus. Because Jesus says that it is. As David Murray uh, titled one of his books, right? Jesus on every page. It's, pretty good. it's a good title. He's talking about the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, as Moses lifted up that servant, so must I, the Son of Man. Remember, that's Jesus' favorite title for himself. It's not a title of humanity, but a title of divinity. As Moses lifted up that serpent, so must I be lifted up. And notice in John chapter 3 that there are two musts and that they go together. Verse 7, 
You must be born again. But how? Verse 14. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. And every time Jesus uses that phrase, lifted up, in John's gospel, he always uses it in reference to the cross. In chapter 12, verse 32, he says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Well, what's he talking about? Verse 33. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. You see, lifted up equals death. Lifted up equals cross. So here, in only our third chapter, in this glorious conversation about our need for new birth, about our need for spiritual life, Jesus is already telling us how it is going to happen. We pay a lot of attention in this chapter to verses 3 and 7 and then just to verse 16, but we don't give so much attention to verse 14. But this is the how of all of that. This is the how of the new birth. This is how the Holy Spirit, who is holy, can come in and make you, who are not holy, new. This is how he can move you from death to life. It's because of verse 14. It's because of the death of of the Son. The Spirit can do nothing for you without first the death of the Son. The Revealer is also first the Redeemer. And the main thing He came to reveal to us was this thing. The very reason that He came was for Him to die. And why? And sin. The wages of sin is death. You owe it. We all owe it for our sin. And God is just. So the payment must be made. Either you will pay it. Or Christ will pay it for you. And that is why he has come. To live in the place of his people. And then to die in the place of his people. Paying our death debt. So for you to be born again. He must be lifted up. He must go to the cross and die. And he has. Now church this is why Jesus is the only way. This is why we talk about evangelism. This is why we say uh, next week we're going to talk about how we evangelize Muslims. The next week, uh, how, how we evangelize uh, Jewish people. Uh, listen, cause it's because there are no other ways to God. None. God is perfectly holy. We, all of us, are profoundly sinful. And the two do not and cannot mix. For sinful man to be with holy God, something must be done about the sin that separates us from him. And as we saw last week, if we are already spiritually dead then there's nothing that we can do about that sin. But Jesus can do something. And Jesus has done something. And this is why we have no problem, again, graciously, kindly, proclaiming well, that everyone else is wrong. And that we're right. And it sounds obnoxious. It's like the chief of sins these days. Um, but it shouldn't be. Again, it's not because we're so great or because we figured anything out, but it's simply because this is what Christ himself proclaims. You cannot follow Christ and not agree with him about his exclusivity. You can't. You just can't do it. This is what he claims for himself. There is no other way. Why? Because there's no other payment for the penalty of sin. Muhammad does nothing about the death debt that you owe for your sin. Uh, Buddha does nothing about the death debt that you owe for your sin. Joseph Smith does nothing about the death debt that you owe for your sin. Only Jesus dies in the place of sinners for the forgiveness of sins. Right? That's what we're going to meditate on Friday night. So come to our Good Friday service at 8. And let's, let's think on the cross together. The death that gives us life. But Christ is not just the only one who has died for sin. No, he is the only one who has died for sin. He, he, had, he didn't only die for sin, but he's also the only one who then rose again three days later. 
So come again next week on Sunday as we then meditate on the resurrection because Jesus is alive. And he is the how of the new birth. His life, death, and resurrection. He reveals to us God as the Son of God himself, and then he brings to us redemption with that God. He buys us back. He delivers us from the sin that enslaves. He frees us from the death that we owe. He redeems us so that he can then reconcile us to God and restore us to relationship with him. There can be no new birth without the redemption that Jesus brings. There can be no new birth without the death of Christ on the cross to pay that death penalty that we owed for our sin. He is the how. And so the last question then is, well, how do we benefit from this work that Christ has done? How do we gain access to the benefits that Christ brings? It's point number four. It's belief brings life. And I'll be brief. This is, this is next week. Verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 16, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's repeated twice for us. So we're going to look at this in great detail next week. We're going to try and tackle both the nature of the love of God and the nature of faith and then how those two things are connected. But for now, just the basic idea. Belief, which we just established a few weeks ago, is the same thing as faith. Faith, belief, trust brings life. Belief is the means by which the benefits Christ bought become ours. Belief is the means by which the Spirit connects us to Christ. So we often illustrate it with it's like, it's like the jumper cables that connect our dead battery to Christ's live battery. Right? Faith is just the jumper cables. It's the means uh, through, through which his life comes and gives us life. It is the Spirit who gives that life. So it is the Spirit who takes what Christ has done and then applies it to us, and he does it through the means, through the gift of faith. We were dead. We were blind. We did not understand. The Spirit gives us new birth. He gives us new life. He opens the eyes of our heart. We then see, we understand now by the grace of God, and we believe. And whoever believes in Jesus receives the life that he has purchased for his people. The most important and the best thing that you can do then is to simply believe this gospel. There's a lot of confusion right now on the role of the church and what it means to do the work of God. There are some churches just doing some crazy stuff right now. Uh, Jesus tells us what to do. Uh, Jesus tells us what uh, the work to be done is. The crowd asks Jesus in John 6:28, "What must we do to be doing the works of God?" Isn't that what many people are asking today? Jesus replies in verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. See, this is first and foundational. Believe, or as we put it back in chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look and live. John the Baptist has told us that Jesus was the lamb who takes away sin. Well, we know that lambs do that by dying as a substitutionary sacrifice for sin. Now Jesus tells us how and where he is going to do that. He is that lamb who is going to die on that cross as our substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And what happens when, that, when he does that? Who was he? Well, in chapter 1, verse 4, we read that in him was life. In chapter 5, 26, we read that he has life in himself. In chapter 11, verse 25, we read that he is the resurrection and the life. 
And so he who is life submits himself to death so that he could then give us his life. We now live by his life. And he gives us that life by his death. And so he says, he tells us what to do. He gives us our application point. He says, believe. Look at him. Just like Israel with the snake. Right? There was life simply in a look. They did nothing but looked and then lived. And remember, don't, don't forget what they were looking at. They were looking at the very thing that was killing them. Man, we got to be careful with this language, but Paul gives us this language. Don't forget what Jesus was on that cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Yeah, that's, that's profoundly amazing. The very thing that was killing you. Jesus is on that cross for your sin, in a sense, as your sin. He's on that cross for you, in a sense, as you. Paul tells us in Galatians, he becomes the curse for us. So again, the things that are killing us, the curse, is now then up on that cross in Christ. And as we look to the very thing that was killing us, and we see it die up there on that cross in Christ, he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Look and live. Trust that he is the only hope for the forgiveness of your sins. Trust that he is what you are looking for, that he is life and that he is light, that he is the only one who can give you meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction, hope, joy, and peace. Life, because he is life. So have you found your life in Christ? Remember, we saw that in birth shows itself. Living things move and act and live. They do things. Right, is, your, is that life showing itself in your life? Are you living your life as if you have believed and repented? Because if you're not, we just simply may not actually have the life. Because by the grace of God, that life transforms us. As we encounter the best being and the most perfect person, he makes us new. And there's nothing better than knowing him. Do you have this life? Can I tell in any way? 1 John 5, 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. How can these things be? Jesus is the only answer. Jesus is how the new birth happens. He reveals and he redeems and he redeems by living, dying, and rising again. Do you believe this? Have you been born again? Have you looked and lived let me close with this. If you haven't read John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, shame on you. Um, get off social media and read Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, buy it and read it now. Uh, Christian is our famous pilgrim in the story. Uh, Christian is bearing a burden. He is straining under the great weight of this burden. It is the burden of his sin and the burden of his attempting to save himself from his sin. He cannot bear the weight. He longs to be free of it. How can he be free of this burden? Now here's the glorious scene. Uh, Bunyan writes this. This is a dream. He's watching this in a dream, so you hear a dream reference. Bunyan says, Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a sepulcher, a tomb, or a grave. So I saw in my dream... That just as Christian came up to the cross, 
his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble. And so continued to tumble till it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome. It was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs there that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Then Christian gave three leaps for joy and went on singing, Blessed cross, blessed sepulcher, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. Oh, it's just beautifully written. I love conversion stories. I love good um, fictional accounts of, of salvation, and that's just one of the best. It's, it's the sight of the cross. It's the sight of the one on that cross that relieves us from our burden and sets us free. So look, and look again, and look again, and look again at Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. If you would bow with me, and let's close with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your Son that you have sent, that you have given to us, the Son who reveals us, reveals you to us, the Son who redeems us and restores us to you. Father, we thank you for the gift of faith that gives us the eyes to see and to receive the Son and what he has purchased uh, for us. Father, I pray that we would be as moved as Christian is moved in this account by the sight of the cross. Father, I pray that we would never get over our forgiveness, and our salvation. I pray that it would be the defining reality of our lives. I pray um, that this new birth that you graciously grant to all who are yours would drive us and define us. I pray that it would be so abundantly clear and evident um, that we live now um, by your grace and by your power, that now it is Christ who lives in me, Christ who is our hope, Christ who is our life. Um, so, Father, please do this work um, in us. Father, give us great joy in Jesus. Uh, I pray um, that our lives would be changed to the core and that our lives would then be lived um, in light of what you have done for us. Father, forgive us for how prone we are to live for ourselves. Forgive us for how much most of us right now can't wait to get home and to do what we want to do and to relax and to rest and to, to satisfy ourselves. Father, utterly transform our lives and their purposes. Um, make us about you uh, and for you and help us to see the delight and the joy that it is to know you and to live with you and to live for you. Father, please now work uh, by your spirit through these words of eternal life. Uh, grant new life to anyone in here who may not know you. Um, Father, grant them repentance and faith. And Father, for those of us who by your grace do, we pray that you would give us a fresh and new delight in the life that you have given us in Christ. We thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you for this uh, wonderful time together. And we ask and pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.